Pod. Pod. Have a check stole the pod. And Jared Weiss stole Kemba Walker from Charlotte. Should they charge you with tampering, Jared? <laughs> uh, I should probably get a commission of this contract, right? Yeah, how, what percent are you charging? Uh, I'll take zero dollars. Maybe another sit-down sometime would be nice. We'll, we'll start right there. Welcome back to the show, Jared. You went out to, to uh, Toronto, Japan, much further, way before anyone Same was different. even thinking about Kemba becoming a Celtic this summer. W- how'd that come together? Um... I was going to, well, I want to thank Kyrie Irving first and foremost because with him just kind of like destroying their playoff run at the uh, at the end of the season, uh, the season ended a little bit earlier than I'd originally been planning for or at least had been like originally plan, uh, preparing for. And so because of that, I was able to go to my friends. Uh, well, I didn't make the wedding, but my friends were getting married in Korea and then they were going to do Japan for a honeymoon, and we had a bunch of friends going out there, so I wanted to join them. My dream trip my entire life had been to go to Kyoto and Tokyo, which we ended up getting to do. And so when the, regular, when the season ended early, I realized I could get out there in time. Unfortunately, I couldn't get, uh, get to the wedding. I missed the wedding by like a few hours. But I was able to do Japan, and then when I was, out, you know, when I was heading out there, Whenever I hit the road, I always reached out to, you know, sources or players or whomever to see if they're free or if there's some story I can chase there. And so reached out to the NBA and turned out that they were holding this whole event for the NBA finals. There's going to be a watch party and they were going to bring a guest and then it turned out to be Kemba. So I was able to work it out with, uh, you know, with Kemba's team and with them to get a sit down with them. And I figured I would just get a second to talk with them and uh, that would be it. But we ended up getting lunch, just the two of us at this amazing cafe with anybody that is ever visiting Tokyo, you have to check out the, I think it's in Harajuku, which is an amazing neighborhood, like incredible fashion, incredible sneaker shopping, all that stuff. Uh, but there's this, there is a cafe there called Coast to Coast Cafe, and it's the only NBA bar in all of Japan, apparently. And it's this amazing place where they have all this really cool gear, they have murals on the walls of NBA players, like all this really, really interesting stuff. And most importantly, the food was amazing. Like, I couldn't believe how good the food was there. So we ended up having a great time, and it was a great experience. And, uh, yeah, he's a, he's a phenomenal guy, really, really fascinating, easy-to-get-along-with guy. You know, there's a lot of interviews you do where you sit down with a guy, and they're, they're quiet. You feel like you're not really talking to a person, but, like, some sort of, you know, um, simile of a person. And with Kemba, it was like sitting down with an old friend. It was, it was a really great experience, and Celtics fans are obviously going to love him. If anybody missed that article, they can go check it out on The Athletic Kemba talking about Tony Parker back then staying in Charlotte. That obviously changed, and lots has changed since then. Let me check the date on this. June 1st, we're just a month and a half later, and the whole entire league has changed on here, on July 12th as we record this. If you could compare this offseason to a meal as we stick on this food topic, what would it be? Uh, or an alcoholic beverage. Oh, okay. Well, then it's... Uh... It's, if you took a Long Island iced tea and you poured a bucket of moonshine into it, basically, <laughs> um, I mean, it's insane. If it's a meal, it's like, uh, uh, what do you call it? Is it bim bim bop? Is that, am I thinking the right dish? Or is that, it's a you know, Southeast Asian dish. It's like just like a giant bowl of a bunch of different like crazy ingredients that all taste amazing together somehow, even though it doesn't like you make any sense. So like, yeah, I mean, this was, it was like the entire, 
mean, the entire league has been reconstructed essentially, right? Like all of them, almost all of the main power players have shifted. And I think I'm trying to remember, but I think Milwaukee is Milwaukee is the only power that has actually like kind of generally remained at the same. And even they lost Brogdon. Yeah, and you could say uh, you could say Houston is kind of in that same spot after making the trade for Westbrook. So I guess Milwaukee and Houston, who I feel like are kind of like for some reason those two teams feel interconnected to me. Maybe it's because they're like the most potent team at each conference, but they just they come up like just short, and they have the MVP of the league and the entire system's built around them. So I guess I guess I say that because they're like they they've been the only teams that kind of feel like the entire system runs through a singular superstar. And so it's really interesting to see that those two teams are essentially in the same position, although I guess it's because they're the two teams that kind of are based off of one superstar. So whatever pieces change around them, it generally feels like they're in the same spot. This offseason has also really brought up a lot of topics about how it's structured. There's three big things for me. First, we heard Danny Ainge saying that he'd like to move the free agency period to before the draft. I mean, I wish that we did free agency before the draft. Um, that, that, would be, that would help. In your ideal timeline, something like free agency before the draft, I mean, how, how do you think that would go, ideally? That's a that's a long conversation to have. I mean, it's complicated, but um, because I understand the challenges that the league has, but just suffice to say, we could do free agency before the before the draft. I think that it's possible to do. There was all that talk about the backdoor deals, all the tampering that went on that the league doesn't look look at really. And then there's also all the draft night trades. Like guys were missing summer league games because those trades don't go through. So all this talk about the off season structure. And then you had a tweet that you've had to defend a little bit about the Marcus Morris situation where he backed out of the Spurs contract during the moratorium and basically did the DeAndre Jordan going to the Knicks. Pretty much the only guy who's spurning the West for the East this summer, it feels like. What does the NBA need to do in your mind with all of this? Because you got the moratorium, you got this weird summer league thing going on, and then all this free agency craziness happening before July 1st. Yeah, so it's funny that you mentioned that because I wrote after that night after that tweet came out, which is I proposed basically like a draconian punishment system for when players or teams back out of a verbal agreement for a reason that isn't considered fair. Um, and so obviously you can't fit all of that into one tweet. So the first tweet that I said was that there should be a one-year suspension for when a player backs out of a, an agreement. And obviously people were very unhappy with that because it's only like a third of the point that I'm trying to make. And they didn't bother to read the rest of the string of tweets or the other replies that I had answering, like how would you address other situations, like a team pulling out or whatever. So that one, you know, that went viral. Deadspin did a hit piece on it, which was just one Deadspin's journalistic responsibility should have been to read through everything that I said and then present that rather than just taking the first part of what I said, but whatever, I'm not surprised that Deadspin their, you know, their reputation has gone pretty downhill, even though they still do some great work once in a while. Um, well, I should say once in a while, I'm sure they do plenty of good work to balance it out. Um, and also just like they drew a bunch of conclusions in that story that were just incorrect as far as like analyzing how the market works or what, you know, legal standards apply. It's like things are different in the NBA, but whatever. Uh, we can get to that later. I, so the point is, right before we started recording, I finally got to publish my full proposal for how the system should work. And so a big thing is that 
verbal agreements control the league. So you can't, because of the way the moratorium is set up, because of the way free agency is set up, which is kind of like, if you basically say that free agency exists as an anti-tampering mechanism. And I think that's another part of the discussion that we should have later in this conversation. But so the, all these verbal agreements are being reached before free agency begins. So there's two, there's two issues to what, how the verbal agreements are reached. One is that if you reach a verbal agreement, it is not legally binding. So you can back out of it technically for any reason that and that's you want. the problem. You, yeah. So Marcus Morris was able to back out of it because he found out subsequently that there was more money for him somewhere else. And that's a major ethical violation, but there is no, it's not a violation of the CBA. It's not a violation of any state or federal law. I mean, I don't know of any state laws, but I'm pretty sure there's no state law that could supersede the federal law that allows you to openly negotiate and change your contracts. And so, so that's like, that's the extent to where the law ends on this subject. And then you're getting into the rules of the CBA. And because the NBA is a private organization or association of organizations, however you want to frame it, um, they're allowed to create private um, you know, rules that are more significant and limiting than what the law allows, as long as it's collectively bargained. And it is collectively bargained, so the players to play in the league have to agree to it. If they think it's unfair, they could sue them in federal court if they want to, but we haven't really seen that happen. The best example I can remember of something like that is when Tom Brady sued over you know, sued to get his Deflategate suspension vacated because yeah. he was alleging that the, the arbitration process, which is established in the CBA, was fixed and the NFL was not providing an independent arbitration process for him. So my proposal is that you create a letter of intent. And this is on the article in The Athletic. You can read the full details there. <laughs> but so, Are they going to bring out the hats too at like college? <laughs> no, that'd be good too. But so, with a letter of intent, and the letter of intent with the college is also not legally binding, and players change because coaches get fired, and they're there to just go with the coach. Or now it seems if you're a top recruit, one of your siblings or family members is what is that coach, and that's how it works. It's funny if you want to figure out where the top prospects are going, figure out where their brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers are getting hired by which school, and you'll be able to figure out where they're going. Because like, I feel like. Like eight, like five of the next top ten recruits in the last, next couple of years, their parents are all getting hired, or their older siblings are all getting recruited to that school. So whatever. So the point is, you have a letter of intent. What this does is, when you reach a verbal agreement, the team drafts up the letter of intent, which will be a model form where you just fill in. It'll be like instead of like a complex contract, it'll just be like let's say a one-page letter that just states the you know the person, the player, and the team, the 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 years that you're signing up for the dollar amounts that you're signing up for and then any other agreement that you've reached about like features of the contract, like guarantees, incentives, options, stuff of that nature. So if, uh, so, so that, so you send, what you do is you fill out that, that, that form and you email it to the agent and the player and then the player just digitally signs it. You can execute that in a matter of minutes. So the point of the verbal agreement is that transactions are getting negotiated, you know, and, and moving in like a minute-by-minute basis during free agency, or now the pre-free agency period where a lot of these are getting actually done. And by having this letter of intent, you can execute an agreement in a very quick amount of time that allows you to continue to, you know, work the allows teams and or agents or whoever to work the system in real time the way that they currently do. And so what this letter of intent would do is it wouldn't be legally binding like a contract is. So if you break it, there's no legal consequence. There's no nothing of the sue over or whatever, but 
it would say the CBA would be set up to say that you agree under this letter of intent to a certain, you know, certain amount of penalties that um, if you're trying to break the letter of intent. Now, if you're doing that, then you have to set, you have to basically create allowable circumstances for a contract to be broken or a letter of intent to be broken. So, um, you know, failed physical is the most common reason that this happens. Um, another good example, this just happened with Alec Burks in Oklahoma, is if there's a drastic change in circumstances of the team itself. So if the team's direction or the role that you were promised suddenly changes, then you can, you know, that would be a good reason for, uh, for the agreement to be broken. And so Sam Presti allowed the GM of the Thunder went to Mike Muscala and Alec Burks, who had just signed on to be veteran leaders on this team that was going for the playoffs. And then after the Paul George trade and after they knew they were going to trade Russell Westbrook, realized that they're going to go into a full rebuild. So he went to them and told them, we are happy. We are, we agree to release you from your agreement and there will be no harm done. And so there was no legal necessity for him to do that. No necessity to do that under the CBA either, but the whole, like the whole system operates on trust, right? So, if a player pulls out unilaterally from an agreement, that's a massive violation of trust that will hurt him with every other team and will hurt his agent. And the agent doesn't want that happening. What's the point of the moratorium then if we have this period where they come to these agreements that aren't really agreements that we see on Twitter like five days later and we're like, oh, we already knew that. Why not just sign contracts from the day free agency opens? So that's a great point. And the main reason that the moratorium still exists is that we saw the Jimmy Butler trade is a great example of that. So the Jimmy Butler trade was set up a few days before free agency. Um, Dallas and Miami had agreed to some framework of a deal. I never got a straight answer from you. Know, I, so I reported that that deal fell apart. Uh, I think on June 30th or July 1st, that whole day was a blur. It's hard to remember. But the so, Kelly Olenek deal. Um, yeah, so I knew that Jimmy Butler, once I found out Jimmy Butler was going to Miami, I had figured out that Josh Richardson was getting traded. And so I started working sources to figure out how were they going to make this fully work because Josh Richardson wasn't enough for that to, for that to happen. So I knew, so I, yeah, eventually I figured out that it was going to be Dallas and Miami making the deal. I wasn't able to report that first. I think Mark Steinless had it first, that it was Goran Dragic going to Dallas. And then, I got a text from one of my sources telling me that there was a glitch in the trade. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? And so this was after frequency had already begun. And, you know, and I had been hearing that like this Dragic trade had already been agreed to a few days earlier. Um, you know, and now that they're at the finish line, it's just a matter of like finalizing everything. And they had to probably throw in a couple extra pieces or picks or whatever. But then Dallas says, we don't want Goran Dragic. We want Derek Jones and Kelly Olynyk." And Miami was refusing to include Derek Jones, which honestly, I'm not really sure why, but I think it's that Derek Jones is probably a piece that they want to keep long-term because he's cheap and he's like a solid rotation player while like Dragic, Olenek and Hassan Whiteside are guys that aren't really a part of their future. So they wanted to use this opportunity to dump those big contracts that they otherwise can't really dump for a good value. So that trade died. And that explains to you why the moratorium is so important because when that trade died, the Jimmy Butler deal with Miami at that time could not be executed. And so Miami needed to start scrambling to find another trade partner, which they eventually found by sending us on Whiteside off to Portland, right? 
yeah. and then eventually rerouting Mo Harkless, who they were getting back in that deal, out to the Clippers, which, frankly, I like Mo Harkless a lot, and I would have wanted to keep Mo Harkless, but um, I haven't gone through Miami's you know payroll and roster yet since free agency started to figure out exactly why they were doing that one. But so the point is, is that Miami, their deal fell apart, and they needed to find another deal to, to keep all of their other deals going. And so if you get rid of the moratorium, you're basically making it so that, you know, right now with the way the system is set up, teams that do not have cap space can get a player to come join them and commit to joining them and then figure out the way to open up the rest of the cap space. And obviously they have, you know, before the, um, before free agency begins, they're going, the reason why there's like all these leaks about where guys are probably going to go and stuff like that is because Miami is calling up all these other teams around the league you know, we, a week or so, or probably even more, before free agency begins, and they're saying, "Hey, can you could we work out a deal where we could dump the salary to you because we need to open the salary up?" And I'm, I assume they're not telling the other teams that it's because they're trying to sign Jimmy Butler, but you know, the teams can probably figure out that it's Jimmy Butler. Yeah. So then rumors start circulating that Jimmy Butler is probably going to go to Miami, and then people start to you know, and it's like you know, there were. There were some rumors of that nature that I was picking up, and that's how I ended up reporting Rogier. Um, although Shams, credit to Shams, he was the one that broke that first. Um, you know, there's like a few other, you know, a few other ones. And so, you know, when uh, D'Angelo Russell that came out in Minnesota, I've been hearing for like three days that D'Angelo Russell was meeting with Cat in Minnesota, and things were looking really good there. Even though he actually has been staying with Devin Booker in LA for a while now, and Devin Booker was trying really hard to get him into Phoenix, and Phoenix wasn't able to pull that off. So you know, there's all these machinations going on behind the scenes, and things are getting set up and negotiated the week before the pre-agency even begins. And so when things fall apart, or you're still trying to work things out after the second that the clock strikes, I guess now six o'clock on June 30th, you need that moratorium period to finish off those negotiations and get everything lined up because. You have to order all you know. All these teams are, are are conducting, you know, a handful, if not more than you know, a dozen transactions uh, in free agency, and they need to line up the sequence of events to make everything fit under the cap. So I think as long as they have the salary cap, they're probably going to have to have the moratorium. But it seems that the moratorium, from everything I'm hearing, is probably going to get cut in half mm-hmm. in the next CBA. Hey, next time Twitter says this isn't it to one of your ideas, Jared, just double down. Just go, you know what? They should get the Tyreek Evans treatment if they back out of a deal. <laughs> this view gets me excited. That view back there of the city. I'm, you know, I came out here. I hadn't seen, noticed it before. <laughs> I'm hyped. I'm ready to go. I'm just letting you guys know right now. Al Horford got introduced in Philly today. What's your understanding of why he seemed to just disengage from Boston, it felt like, as they were scrambling to keep him in that last day. I think that they probably just didn't really they didn't really um, have an offer that was close enough to Phillies. I mean, I, we've heard a bunch of different, um, I think, estimations or you know, good guesses at what the offer was, but I haven't gotten anything too conclusive. But it seems like it was fairly far away. Um, and I don't blame them because I, I, if I were them, I would rather have Kemba than Al Horford at this point. It's like Kemba is four years younger than Horford, and I mean it's a little bit more expensive, but not that much more expensive. Um, and you know Horford just is better utilized on Philadelphia right now rather than Boston. Um, I mean I guess if they had Kemba as well as Horford, then that wouldn't be the case. They but could have made, they could have made both a, work there somehow. 
they could have, but it didn't seem like that was happening. And when the sign trade was happening, uh, you know, everybody was hearing that Horford is not happening anyway. So I don't really, I'm not really sure. I think it's that they need to like another team or they needed to loop in Kyrie. So I, I'm trying to even remember how that worked. There's been too much information has passed through one ear and out the other uh, over the last couple of weeks to even remember the whole machinations of that. But, but it would have been that either triple way, sign and trade. Yeah. Yeah, I think there would have probably need to be a little bit more done anyway to even really make that work. But whatever. So, you know, Hor- Horford's in the perfect situation. You know, he uh, he doesn't have to move too far, um, which makes life a little bit easier. Although I'm sure he wouldn't mind going back. You know, someone that grew up in the Dominican Republic and then I think Michigan after that, um, and then went to Florida and then played in Atlanta his whole life. I'm sure he probably misses the warm weather a little bit. So, um, you know, Philly isn't that. You know, maybe it's a couple degrees warmer, but so. Him next to Joel Embiid, I mean, it's just it's a match made in heaven. They complement each other's games perfectly. Horford's not a low block guy; he's a high post or you know or five out center. Joel is a low block guy or mid post guy who also can play as a five out center, but his his shooting hasn't really been consistent enough for him to be truly a deadly threat at that yet. Um, and then the, I think they complement each other's skills defensively really well. And Horford gives them center depth for the first time that they can use in the playoffs because a huge issue for them has been that their team falls apart whenever Joel has a sit in the playoffs. So this is huge for fellow members of the Joel you know, of uh, the stand club for Joel that feel that he could be a historically great player but are worried about his long-term health because of the beating that he's taking. At least now this will reduce him needing to play like 44 minutes a game in the playoffs because – Horford can step in there at the five, and they can still remain pretty much the exact same offense. So I mean, this is huge for Philly. I think Philly, probably the best team in the Eastern Conference, maybe is still the best team in the entire NBA. I still think the Clippers are clearly the best team. But, you know, Philly, depending on how Ben Simmons looks at the skill set this year, I mean, if he starts to get even a semblance of a mid-range game going or even just a shot outside the paint game going, then, I mean, that can unlock so much for them. Give me those Clippers, especially with the young guys they're bringing in. You probably caught a glimpse of those guys out at Summer League. throw it down. Doesn't take much to jam that home when you're 7-6. Here this afternoon, there's no doubt about it. Taco Fall standing and delivering. It's Boston by 13. Taco is who everyone wants to talk about. I got a million summer league questions when Yabusele got cut last week. Everybody seemed to think it was related to Taco Fall. What do you think's going on with Fall as summer league starts to wrap up in that 15th roster spot? Taco at this point is not going to be the one to replace uh, uh, to replace Yabu as far as what I'm hearing. I think Himmelsbach was the first to report that one. Um, so yeah, I don't think it's happening at this point. Could happen though at training camp. Certainly possible. Because um, for them, it makes the most sense to send Taco down to the G League, let him develop all the skills there, let him get a feel for the rhythm of the league there, and then work his way up to maybe joining the team in the latter half of the year or just joining them as a full roster spot guy next year. Um, but the problem is that when you have him on an Exhibit 10 contract, which they have, he needs to go to the like, – he has an option of whether or not he wants to go to the G League. If another team is going to offer him a roster spot, then you lose him. And I think we're all seeing here that as far as Exhibit 10 guys go – uh, you know, Taco is has a lot of potential. I mean, he has more potential to be an important rotation player than pretty much any other guy that I've seen come in on like a G League contract or G League summer deal uh, in a while. I know Marcus George's hunted 
and he's like he's had a couple cups of coffee in the NBA. He's like he's a nice player. He tore his ACL last year, unfortunately, so he never got a chance to compete for that two way slot that opened up. But I mean, Taco is different. Like Taco's a guy that. I think if he stays healthy throughout his career, at the minimum, could be a usable backup big. And then if things really work out, he could be like a starter in the NBA. I mean, he probably would be limited to playing 20 minutes, 25 minutes a game, which is fine because, frankly, most big men, most seven-footers, unless they're like Carl Anthony Towns or Joel Embiid, most of those guys only play 20 minutes a game or so in the playoffs anyway. So, I mean, Taco definitely, there is a starting center deep within that giant frame, but it will take so much work for him to get there. But the thing is, I am confident that he has the capability to, you know, to get that work done and really make that grow. Overseas is calling too. The NBL tweeted out that he was talking to Australia and you know, they'd be throwing big money just for him as the attraction out there. So that'll be interesting to follow too. Yeah. It it always seems strange to me that they were going to jump from a two way deal to an actual roster spot for him. What do you think? Is that going to, if that 15 spot going to be that combination of like four guys going for it, like they've done in recent years in training camp? Seems like they're going to, you know, bring a couple extra guys in. Um, You know, the interesting thing is that, once you're over the cap of below the tax, you have a lot of space of you know of dead money that you can take on there. So you know Yabu Yabu's deal for like the three plus million is dead money for the rest of the year. Um, and then wh- whoever if they bring in two guys and they cut one of them, that veteran minimum, which is if it's a young guy, it could be like you know a million dollars. If it's an older guy, it could be like two million dollars. That money is also going to be dead money. And a lot of teams don't want to you know get extra players and then cut them because that dead money pushes you towards the tax line. But I believe right now they have enough space away from the tax line that they don't really have to worry about that too much. So I, I definitely, I definitely could see, uh, could see them uh, taking into more, you know, and right now, I mean, on the roster, it's hard to see a guy that makes sense. They could obviously promote one of these two way guys up to a full roster spot and then bring in taco or whomever as the other two way guy. Um, you know, we, we're seeing now that Struess is playing. Like he's a he's a pretty big dude. That's a real sharpshooting, uh, you know, sharpshooter. So like that's something that they really would like to have as, uh, for a two way guy. Because if they have an injury to one of the shooters in their rotation, they could use him as a two way guy uh, to you know kind of fill that need for a little bit of time. And then you know, Tremont Waters, he's you know he's, he's a small guard, but he can light it up from deep. And so that's another guy that would serve a different role, but kind of do the same thing of providing shooting depth. And thoughts are, of course, with him and that horrible news out of Connecticut this morning. His father yeah, passed that was, away. Yeah, that that was a that was really devastating. So we'll we'll reserve judgment for what's going. I mean, no judgment, but we'll uh, we'll leave it at that. That it was devastating, and we'll see what happens with that situation. You see the work Williams puts in on the glass. The guy's just nonstop. And even if he's not getting the rebound, he's putting his teammates in position by keeping balls alive. He's just great pursuit. Grant Williams looked outstanding to me. He, he Just his position, yeah. especially on this team, where they don't really have like a prototypical small ball four, and they have concerns inside at the five after Ennis Cantor, he looks like he could be a critical player from day one for this team. And that stroke looked consistent outside. He, he was hitting his threes as last night. I think he hit four out of five, right? And he's rebounded. This guy just looks like exactly what the Celtics needed, and they got him in the 20s, which is just incredible. But once he gets against the real guys in the NBA, not not those summer league guys and Taco and everyone else, what's it going to look like from him, you think, year one? Yeah, I mean, he's, 
I think he's going to struggle early on to you know, to really mix it up, and he's going to get taken advantage of down low because his he's you know he's really really powerful, and you know he he's big, he's thick, and he's like all these different tests about his strength have all shown that he's a powerful dude, but he's going to start going up against guys that are just as powerful as him, and they're more athletic and they're bigger, and that's where technique and you know and awareness and leverage and all that stuff that's where all those skills that he's going to develop over the next few years are going to start to come in and that's where he's going to be able to get his advantage and i mean the reality is that he's listed at six seven inch shoes i mean i think he, he's a little bit shorter than that but whatever he looks short is, at that intro um, yeah yeah i mean i've i've, I've talked to him in person a couple times and i'm six feet tall and he's not that much taller than me so i feel like he's probably around six five to six six i mean he it doesn't really matter too much because he's just so good and he's so smart that he plays bigger than that but you know once you get to like playing as a, if you're in like the, the starting lineup or the closing lineup like you're just going up against the guys that are just bigger and faster and that's where it becomes you know, that you're just limited and I think he definitely is He's so smart and so talented that I think he's going to figure it out and he's going to be a really good NBA player. And then the question of, what, you know, how, how good does he become? Does he become, uh, you know, a Draymond-esque or Al Horford-esque player? You know, that's the real question mark. Because, you know, Draymond is a good example of someone whose impact is comparable to Al Horford. I mean, you could, I mean, you could probably argue it's better than even Al Horford. Um, and he's, like, also a pretty similar size to uh, Grant. The big difference is Draymond also has a gigantic wingspan and gigantic hands, um, and really, you know, is really also really broad too, and um, and also kind of runs like a gazelle. Which Grant moves really well, but he kind of moves more like a big man than Draymond does. Draymond kind of can really move like a wing, which is amazing at his size. So, you know, when you compare him to the other guys that are a similar template to where he is, you know, and you kind of pick apart their physical attributes, you can see a lot of what makes you know gives them that advantage and obviously Al Horford is six foot ten and more athletic so another reason why Al Horford is so great um but yeah I don't want to ramble on it too much about it but so Grant's uh passing vision is terrific leadership and communication skills on the floor are demonstrably fantastic and the next piece I'm working on is actually about that specifically I sat down with him in Vegas to talk about that so a little teaser there um and he's stroking it and you know a huge part of his ceiling is whether he is a good spot up three-point shooter and he's already doing it in summer league and i mean if there's one thing that you have to wonder is translatable from the nba to the summer league he's hitting the shot from the same spot on the floor where it's going to be in the nba so it seems like that's going to be a real part of his game pretty early in his career i think it's going to be tougher when the guys that are closing out on him are getting closer and they're faster and they're longer and that's going to mess him up a little bit but I mean, he, he's, a, he's showing that when he's in a rhythm, he can be a really good three-point shooter, and that makes me think that he can be a really good starter in the NBA if he's in that shot. Now, now that we have this roster sheet in front of us, pretty much 1-14, to we know th- what the Celtics are going to be looking like. My big thing looking at this team is the defense, and they've been so great at defense under Stevens pretty much from day one with the scheming and the defenders that they've had, drafting Marcus Smart. His second year, too, changed everything. But now a lot of that personnel has gone out the window. You know, Kemba's never known to be a great defender. The center position has just flipped 180 going from Horford to Cantor. And you can find your fair share of Cantor mishap videos on YouTube on that end. And even, you know, the amount of minutes that they're going to be handing the Tatum Brown now... They, those guys haven't been proven to be great, great defenders either. They've had their moments, but the consistency is what you're looking at this team, and I'm wondering, can they be a good defensive team this year? 
I don't know because Al Horford was the heart of that defense. You know, it was smart up top, Horford underneath. Um, I mean, Kyrie's defense is a huge problem, and I, I disagree with most of the analysis out there about Kyrie's defense. Kyrie was, at times, a really good defender, and he also, to his credit, tried to do a lot more hustle plays and stuff of that nature. But he's part of this class, or this group of point guards that exert a lot of energy on offense and then defend in a very predictable and ineffective way where Kyrie has this weird, this, whatever, I don't want to spend 20 minutes on Kyrie. But so Kyrie just, he did too many things that basically he would, mat, he would play Matador defense. And when players would get by him, instead of continuing through the play, he would watch the play from the top of the key, trying to get out to transition and force the defense to defend four on five. And so if Kemba, you know, Kemba may not be uh, physically as good on ball as Kyrie can be, but if he stays committed to the play, that makes him a much better defender. And, I mean, doing that and being an offensive juggernaut is really hard, and that's why most of these guys aren't able to do that. It's part of what makes like Steph Curry so spectacular or Chris Paul so spectacular, that they're able to be a two-way player at the hardest position to do it. Um, so I think a lot of it has to do with, is Kemba sticking with guys through ball screens? And if he is, that means that the rest of the defense doesn't have to collapse because the point guard usually is determining on defense whether the rest of the defense has to collapse to make up for them and then whether they can stay home on shooters, they can clog up the lane, all that kind of stuff. So it all starts there, and everything else is a chain reaction from there. But the big thing was that Al Horford was just such a smart defender and was so communicative that he couldn't make up for a lot of mistakes that were made by Kyrie and, and everybody else out there. And he was always able to usually fix things when they were starting to go wrong. And that is, I mean, a lot of it's physical, but most of it's really just mental. Most of it is being able to read the floor, being a good communicator, knowing the entire playbook and just being a savant. And Grant has those skills and we're seeing it in summer league. Their defense has been unbelievable because Grant's running the defense. And the fact that Grant is running the defense that well on a team that like just came together a week ago with a bunch of guys that don't even know each other, like that's spectacular. And if they can somehow get Grant to be good enough and uh, ready enough to be the center for them right away, I could see him. I could actually see him being the anchor of a really good defense the way that Horford was. Um, you know, but it looks like it's not really clear if Brown or Smart is going to start. I think it's really too early to know that. Assumedly, Hayward's going to start. Assumedly, Hayward's going to be back and be really good. Um, that's a huge factor here. But so I think they're probably going to be a middle-of-the-pack defense and be a really good offense. Um, but there's, there is still the core pieces in place for them to have potentially be a really good defense. Have to throw in this one before we let you keep humming on there on the highway. Is there any chance Westbrook and Harden works? Two of the highest usage guys this league's ever seen joining up. They had all the pictures of them trying to steal the ball from each other last night. <laughs> and that's honestly that that's honestly the way this is looking like. It's just, let's throw these guys together. All the talent in the world is in our backcourt. Let's see if it works. You know, I, I, yeah, it could. It's, uh, it's not as good of a fit on the floor as CP3 and Harden. Uh, which is certainly problematic there. Because um, mostly just because Russ has not been able to shoot for a couple of years now. And if Russ is off ball and isn't able to shoot, I mean, OKC struggled to figure out a way to really utilize him. 
Um, but the thing is, like, OKC's offense has a bit more motion to it, while Houston's offense has been very much spread out isolation, where Russell being a threat as a spread guy was really is really important to Harden being able to do his thing. So, you know, I think if Westbrook is on is off the ball, then he has to do cutting. Like, that's mostly how he makes his bread and butter off the ball. And so it means they have to change up the way that they run that offense a bit to make, you know, to make use of them. So I think he's going to be on the ball a lot of the time. And, I mean, if they're smart, what they should be doing is basically switching it up between the two of them pretty frequently so the defense doesn't really get into a rhythm. And they should be running ball screens for each other. I mean, you know, we talk, I think we talk about this in the public sphere all the time about why don't these teams of two elite offensive players run ball screens for each other because then the defense is like, shit, what do we do? Who do we, who do we you know, focus on here? Both players need to be focused on what do we do? So I'd like to see them do that. And Russ can be a really good pick and roll, a you know, really good uh, screen and roll guy being the big as the screener for James Harden. I think that would be really interesting. Um, I think personality wise, they can probably make it work. Um, you know, I, I think Russ to his credit, I, I've been very, not anti-Russ, but I just I don't like Russ's game, and I don't like the way that he tries to manage the game. I don't have a problem with him as a person, even if he's even if he hates the media, like whatever, that's fine. I don't care. Um, but I don't like the way that he runs an offense. It's really frustrating because he has always been balls to the wall at every single moment, no matter the context of the situation. And he just he for every single time that he helps you win the game, there's another time where he'll do the exact opposite. And so he needs to get that under control because he's playing with another player that has the potency that he has. And last year, I think he recognized that with Paul George, and he took a bit of a backseat. And I think a big part of it was that he was just like shooting like the worst. He had the worst shooting percentage season ever, pretty much for a player of that usage level. Uh, but he became a much more focused distributor, and. I think you saw him playing as more of a point guard, less of an attacker for the first time really ever last year. And the assist numbers are obviously through the roof. And so I think he can play that role next to Harden again this year. And with the team they have around them, I mean, that team is definitely a title contender if they're able to make that dichotomy work. And this ends the greatest standoff in the NBA media sphere, Barry Trammell versus Russell Westbrook. No more of that going forward. Oh, yeah. That's Jared Weiss. Get to your destination. We'll talk to you later in the season. Awesome, man. Thanks for having me.